turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. So I want you to look at your Bibles for a few moments. We're actually going to read uh, just as we did last week, uh, at least through the first 29 verses, and then we will slowly go through the rest of it throughout the service. Nehemiah chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1. Now on the sealed documents were the name, or document, there were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, and Shariah, and Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, uh, Amariah, Mekijah, Hatash, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, uh, Barak, Meshulam, Abijah, uh, Majamim, Messiah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these were the priests, and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, Kadmiah, uh, also their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Pelaeah, Hanan, Micah, Rohab, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, uh, Shebaniah, or Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Benanu, the leaders of the of the people, Perosh, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Bunai, uh, As Asgad, Bibai, Adoniah, or yeah, Adoniah, Nijah, uh, Bigvah, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azor, Hodiah, uh, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, uh, and Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, uh, Meshazabel, Zadok, Hedua, Pelatiah, Hanan, uh, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, uh, Hashab, Halohesh, Pillah, Shobak, 
Rehom, Shebanath, Shebanah, Mehasiah, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, and Baanai. Now, in verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all the, those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given to Mo Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, God, for your word. Lord, it is indeed the inspired word of God, words that you have spoken, the revelation that you've given to us. And God, thank you for what we learn from your word and how you, even as believers, you change our hearts. You conform us into the image of your son by the power of your spirit working through your word. So may today we be changed. May we be conformed to become like you, to be holy, to be a testimony to your name, that you would be glorified. Lord, may people, as a result of what you do in our hearts, may people never look at us and see us as anything special, but may they realize that anything you make us to become is because of your grace. And so may they look to you in your glory. May they understand what it means to have a relationship with the God of all creation. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So I want you this morning to suppose that you're driving on Highway 31 this week and a state patrol pulls up behind you, pulls you over and tickets you going 68 and a 65. I think most of it's 65 miles an hour. If that were to happen, is the officer just in ticketing you? for going three miles over the speed limit. We might not like it, <laughs> but he's certainly just in doing that, isn't he? Because you broke the law. Even though you're just going three miles an hour over the, spirit, the speed limit, you're breaking the law. Now, suppose a few days later, you're driving on Highway 31 and a state patrol pulls up behind you. You already know you're speeding. You think you're going about 83 in a 65. So you're extremely nervous when those red and blue lights start to flash behind you. As the officer walks up beside your vehicle, you notice this is not just any officer. He's your father. 
Your father's a state patrolman. So if that were to happen with your father being a state patrolman, would he be just in ticketing you for going 83 and a 65? Yes, he would. But suppose your father writes you a ticket, puts it in his pocket, and goes and pays for the ticket himself. What's the difference? The difference is relationship. He's your father. You know him. But much more important to that, he knows you. He loves you. He's compassionate towards you. He knows what you deserve, but that's not what he gives you because he's your father. So relationship matters. It matters who you know or who you're known by. Last week, we left off with Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. And notice the words of Nehemiah. Verse 38, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, of our Levites, and our priests. He says, because of all this, because of the cycle that we had seen in the previous verses of sin and mercy, as we defined it, rebellion and mercy. Rebellion and mercy, rebellion and mercy. And because Israel had failed historically to obey God's law, but yet God had been gracious to them, they are now saying, because of that, we're making a covenant with God. We're making an agreement, a written covenant. It's the word in the Hebrew for covenant. And this was a serious covenant. And we can see that in the fact that they're putting it in writing. This is not just some verbal agreement, even though that should mean, uh, mean a person's word. This is something they're putting in writing. Notice it says, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So this is a sealed document, something that they would put a seal upon but also something that would include all the names of the Jewish leaders. They're making it official. They're making a covenant with God. This document required that the Jews keep their word. So this was a covenant that the Jews were making with God. And in it, they're basically saying, now we will keep the Mosaic Covenant. Our fathers felt over and over again, but now we will keep it. Evidently, to these Jews, the issue was understanding the failures of their past, recognizing God's great compassion, and simply making a renewed covenant with God that they will now Keep God's commandments. They're going to be bound by this covenant. Now, let's think about the law for a minute. The Mosaic law, what we call the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It was given to Israel as a set of covenant commands. The law encompassed moral behavior, 
their position as a godly example to other nations, and systematic procedures for acknowledging God's holiness and man's sinfulness. According to Galatians, it was also to serve as a guardian for Israel until the Messiah came, and it was to point them to that coming one, the saving Messiah. Now, historically, the law has been divided, as you see on your paper, it's been divided into three categories. And this is a human construct. It's not something that we find in Scripture, although we see elements of it there. We see some division of the law. And the three categories are the moral law, the the ceremonial laws, and the judicial laws. These divisions of the Mosaic, excuse me, the Mosaic covenant, again, are a human construct. It's something that man has put together to better understand the nature of God and his laws for the Jewish nation. And so you see this division on your handout. Let me just go through that quickly. The moral laws, first of all, relate to justice and judgment. The Hebrew word referring to moral law is often translated as ordinances. These laws, the, what we call moral laws, are based on God's holy nature and are therefore wholly just and unchanging. The moral law encompasses regulations on justice, respect, sexual conduct, and includes the Ten Commandments. It also includes penalties for failure to obey the ordinances and sheds light on the fallen state of man. That's the moral law. So part of the Old Testament law we have defined as moral law. There's also ceremonial law, and there's some overlapping of these concepts. Ceremonial laws, translated from two words, which means custom of the nations, and are translated often as statutes. We just just read that a, a couple moments ago in one of the verses. These laws include instructions on regaining right standing with God after sin. So instructions on regaining right standing with God. And this is the sacrifices, ceremonies, ceremonies regarding uncleanliness. It also, these laws also include instructions or remembrances of God's work in Israel. And that's in the feast and festivals. Regulations meant to distinguish Israelites from their pagan neighbors, dietary and clothing laws in particular, and signs that point to the coming Messiah, the Sabbath, circumcision, Passover, and the redemption of the firstborn. And then we have judicial or civil laws. And this is interesting because we do see the overlapping here. Judicial laws were specifically given for the culture and place of the Israelites and includes all the moral law except the Ten Commandments, meaning that many laws are both moral and judicial. This includes everything from murder, you know, the consequences of murder, to restriction, or excuse me, restitution for a man gored by an ox 
and the responsibility of a man whose neighbor's donkey falls into a pit that he had dug. So they are judicial, civil laws, but they include some moral aspects, but not the Ten Commandments. So hopefully that gives you an understanding a little bit as you think about it uh, in the future. And that's why I wanted you to be able to take that down. So in chapter 10, verses 1 through 29, we see this sealed covenant that Israel is making with God, basically saying, we're going to keep your laws. But we see the names listed, especially in the first 27 verses of chapter 10. It's being, again, made official. But then beginning in verse 30, we see specific obligations mentioned here. Now, he doesn't go through all the 613 Old Testament Mosaic laws. But it seems to me, by reading these laws or things that's mentioned in verses 30 through 39, he's dealing specifically with the areas in which Israel has failed the most and has been brought out. It's brought up. We just read part of it in Ezra this morning, but it's also brought out in the preceding chapters of Nehemiah, as we have already seen. Now look at verse 30. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So they had intermarried with the pagan nations against God's clear commandment. This is nothing new. We know this from the Old Covenant. We know this from Deuteronomy in particular. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4a. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So they're reiterating. They are uh, committing themselves to this particular area of the Old Testament law. This is where they had failed. And we, this is the one that we read in Ezra this morning, where they're making that commitment back in Ezra, where they're doing it again here in the book of Nehemiah. Look at verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring... Uh, wares and grain on the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy them, buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forgo the crops the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. So they're committing themselves to keeping the Sabbath days. This is the fourth commandment. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This was based upon the creation week. And as you go on reading in, in Exodus chapter 20, it's very clear that just as God worked for six days and rested on the Sabbath, we are to work for six days and rest on the Sabbath day. It's to be a day of rest. But this is one of those areas in which Israel had failed drastically. They had failed to keep the Sabbath years, not the Sabbath day, but there was also the Sabbath years where you worked your land for seven years and then you let it rest. Well, that was the particular area in which specifically Israel had failed. That's why they were taken 
uh, into exile into Babylon. It, it says it. Uh, so for 490 years of their history, they did not let the land rest, meaning that there's 70 years that the land should have rested in which it did not. So what did God say that he would do? That he would take them out of the land for 70 years, giving it exactly 70 years of rest. And that's what began to happen. It happened in 606 BC with the first exile from Judah to Babylon. And there were three exiles or deportations the last one in 586 B.C. But this 70 years, God says, you lacked giving my land rest for 70 years. I'm taking you out of the land for 70 years. Listen to Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20 and 21. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God got those years back. This is where they had fell specifically, and they knew it. And so, at this point in the history of Israel, these people, the children of Judah specifically, were saying, we're going to deal with this thing as far as intermarrying with pagan nations, but we're also going to deal with this Sabbath rest issue. God judge us because of it. We were judged. God got his 70 years back. Now it's time to recommit. Now, look at verse 32 to 39. Basically, even though it's broken down and we, we could break it down into some different areas here, there's primarily one issue, one overarching issue. Verse 32 we also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel in all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, the firstborns of our herd and of our flocks that is written in the law. For the priests who are ministering in the house of our God, we will also bring first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine 
and the oil to the priest at the chamber of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. The Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to chamber, excuse me, to the chamber, chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. So just running back through that, I want you to see the significance here. What it's all about. Verse 32, for the service of the house of our God. Verse 33, for the work of, our, of the house of our God. Verse 34, to our God's house. Verse 35, to the Lord's house. Verse 36, to the house of our God. Verse 36, who serve in the house, who serve in our God's house. Verse 37, at the storerooms of the house of our God. Verse 38, in the house of our God. Verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. So we see contributions. We see giving as required by the law to support ministry, to support sacrifices, to support service in temple or temple service. Now, do any of these things apply to the Christian life? Now, we know that we're not under the law. We're under grace. And that is made very clear, in particular, in the book of Galatians. But how do these things, are there any implication for us today? And I think that there are, not in a covenantal sense, because we're not under the law. But as we walk in the Spirit, as we walk by faith, we do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And in, in, to a point, some of these things are fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Because we have the Spirit in the New Covenant, we should seek to glorify God, to serve God from our hearts. Service of our God should be natural. For example, verse 30. Today, the elect are not so much associated with a nationality like the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the way it was with the Old Covenant Jews. But just as the children of Israel were not to intermarry with Gentiles, the New Testament believer is not to yoke up with the unbeliever, whether we're talking about marriage or any kind of yoke. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be un unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we can think about the concept of yoking up, where they would yoke up two ox or two horse, where there's one yoke with two places in which they would place their heads and they would pull together. It's to unite. It's to be yoked together for a common purpose. That's what it means to be yoked up. We are not to yoke up with an unbeliever whether it's marriage, business, financial partnership, it's dangerous. 
Because a believer and an unbeliever have different hearts. One has a heart of stone. One has a heart of flesh. One is described in 2 Corinthians 6 as being righteous and one unrighteous. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? One is light. Because he has the light of God in him and one is darkness. Believers and unbelievers have different interests, different goals, different plans, desires, purposes. To unite, to yoke up with an unbeliever can be disastrous. You know, we often make excuses. I've seen it in marriage so many times over the years where people have made excuses. Well, I love this guy. So, you know, it'll work out. But Vanessa and I have had many people come in tears. Yes, they did love that guy. Or they did love that woman. But to unite, to yoke up with an unbeliever is dangerous because you have completely different purposes. How can you yoke up with an unbeliever and pull the same direction, to pull in unity? Here's the question. Do we know better than God? When we choose to yoke up with an unbeliever in an unbiblical fashion, we're actually saying, God's not right when he warns me not to do this. I know better. My situation is different. I know better than God. We don't know better than God. He loves us. He loves the elect. He cares for us and he's warning us against a dangerous partnership. Verse 31 why was it so important for Israel not to work on the Sabbath? We touched on this a couple weeks ago. God rested on the seventh day of creation. God commanded Sabbath rest, both the weekly and the yearly rest. Hebrews chapter 4, just as we touched on it a couple weeks ago, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as did God from his. Those who have trusted Christ are resting from their works, resting from the burden of sin, resting from their efforts to please God of their own effort, of their own works, of their own ability to keep God's law or any set of laws in order to try to please God. Simply put, we are saved by faith. And we're saved by faith alone, not by works. We are to rest in the work of Christ. He bore our sins on Calvary's cross. He took our place. He's the one that did for us so that we might rest in him. As often as said, we are to rest in what God has done for us what Christ has provided in salvation. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Folks, Jesus Christ took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins on the cross of Calvary and completed the work of salvation. When he died on the cross, just as he was about to die, he said, remember that term, to telestai, it is finished. The work was done. He bore our sins. He died in our place. He suffered the wrath of God that I deserve, that I might have life. Now I am to rest in him. That's my Sabbath rest. The Old Testament Sabbath rest looked ahead. It pictured the rest that you and I would have in Jesus Christ. There are no New Testament commandments of a weekly or a Sabbath rest. In verse 32 and 39, just as they gave support of the ministry of the temple, we are to support God's work today. Remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, for I say this not as a commandment, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. The context is giving. It's not a commandment. We're not under the law, but we are to give. It's grace giving. It's grace giving because of what God has done. So there are no New Testament commandments to keep the Sabbath. There's no New Testament commandments to give a tithe. We're to give of grace. There are no ceremonial laws like feasts or festivals, dietary restrictions. We don't have to avoid pork, shellfish, thank the Lord, or fish without scales. We don't have to avoid mixing fabrics or mixing certain crops together. We're not under the law. We don't have to keep even the Ten Commandments to try to gain God's favor. Folks, we are under grace. That doesn't mean that we go on and just sin the way we want. It means that in grace, because we have the Spirit of God living in us, God has changed our hearts. He's changed our want to, so that we walk in the Spirit. We will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's just that simple. Not even Israel was made right with God by keeping the law. Remember preceding the law, the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham believed God and it was credited, accounted to him for righteousness. The law was a guardian. It was to keep them until the new covenant or till Christ came. It did not make them right before God. It showed them that they could not be right before God by even a perfect standard. Because of the nature of our sin. Because of our sin nature. There are, I'll say at least, and we could to some degree include others, but at least four Old Testament covenants that pointed to the Messiah. And I want us to see in particular where the uh, Mosaic Covenant fits in here. But they either pointed to the Messiah or were fulfilled by the Messiah, thus, in a sense, pointing to the Messiah. First, the Abrahamic Covenant. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
Not seeds, plural, but seed, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, referring back to chapter 22, verse 18 of the book of Genesis. It's seed. Folks, Christ is the seed that would be fulfilled the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abraham points to Christ as just about all the Old Testament covenants. The Mosaic covenant is our schoolmaster, or Israel's schoolmaster, to point us to Christ. Listen to the words in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God knew Israel could not keep his covenant. But there would come a day that those who were indeed children of Abraham would keep God's covenant because God would change their hearts, giving them hearts of flesh. God would write his laws upon their hearts and change their hearts, changing their want-tos, so to speak. And that's the prophecy found in Exodus chapter 19. So living under the, the Mosaic Covenant, the children of Israel would never please God by keeping the Old Testament law, but it pointed ahead to a time when God's laws would be written on man's hearts. What about the Davidic Covenant? God promised David that one of his descendants would establish an eternal kingdom. The Gospel of Matthew begins, the very first verse of that book, the book of the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yet he traces the genealogy through Abraham, or from Abraham, for the Lord Jesus Christ. But he mentions, he begins, that Jesus is the son of David. The angel told Mary concerning the son whom she would conceive. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great. Talking about Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. The Old Testament scriptures are picturing, they're shadowing, they're pointing ahead to when the real covenant will be fulfilled. To when the Messiah will one day come. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, 
born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, also in the book of Ezekiel. Three particular things from the book of Jeremiah 31. God will change their hearts and give them a zeal for obedience. He will be their God and they will be his people. And he will forgive the sins of his people. And the scriptures clearly, clearly reveal that this promise is fulfilled in Christ and is realized by the indwelling spirit of God. And it's important to know, just as we were saved by the spirit, we are to live by the spirit. See, this is fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. And when he left and he went back to heaven, he ascended back to his father's right hand. He said that the spirit, a comforter, one called along beside us to help would come. And that spirit indwells every believer. Paul wrote to Galatia, the church of Galatia, chapter 5, verse 16, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 25, if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. We just need the Spirit of God indwelling us. And that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in which God comes to live. He comes to be our God and we His people. Him indwelling us, changing us, transforming our hearts, redeeming us out of the bondage of sin. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, you're familiar with it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such, there is no law. Also, according to chapter 3 of Galatians, just as we receive the Spirit by faith, we are to walk by the Spirit through faith. We've already pointed out its fruit. Oh, we were talking about seeds, I'm sorry. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not fruits. These are not, it's not naming the fruits of the Holy Spirit. There's one fruit that's characterized by these descriptive nouns. Love, joy, or it's the word cheerfulness, peace. That's actually can be, and often it's translated rest. There's the Sabbath rest. Patience or long-suffering. Kindness means kind or usefulness or moral excellence. Goodness means virtue. Faithfulness. Simply means faith or assurance, gentleness, meekness, and then self-control. If you want to know if you're walking by the Spirit, look at your fruit. It's that simple. A Sunday school teacher asked a little girl in her class, Do you think you have a new heart? Yes, I do, replied the child. What makes you so sure, asked the teacher. The little girl responded simply, because I love the things I used to hate and hate the things I used to love. See, that's the evidence. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said? That the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, 
is summed up in two laws. The laws of Christ. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. One more thing here. Notice the contrast in Galatians chapter 5 between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. It's not fruit and fruit and works and works. It's fruit of the Spirit and works of the flesh. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, robberies, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of of God. These are the works of the flesh. They proceed from the flesh, the old sin nature. The spirit produces fruit. The flesh produces works. Fruit does not stem from human effort. It stems from the spirit of God that indwells every true believer. It's fruit. It's not works. It's fruit. That which is pleasurable, enjoyable, satisfying, natural, producing spiritual health. And fruit stems from a healthy tree or a healthy plant. It's the natural product of the Spirit that we're talking about here. So if we indeed receive the Spirit through faith, we must walk by the Spirit through faith. And that takes us right back to where we began with relationship. You know, Paul says, quoting, I think it's from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. We're talking about a confidence in the God that created us, the God that redeems, that chooses people out of every tribe, tongue, people and nation, and by his own mercy and grace. Not because we're anything special. Not, not because we deserve to be chosen. Because we do not. But simply by his grace. The goodness of his grace. He has chosen us. We don't deserve it. If we had a billion years, we could never earn it. It is by his grace. And his grace alone. Folks, we're talking about a God that loves the elect. We're talking about a relationship that's an intimate, caring relationship that we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ by his spirit indwelling and working in us. 
It's the fulfillment of the new covenant. You know, I used to say, man, I'd love to live in that day. Talking about some time back in biblical history. Or even in the life of Christ. And there would certainly be blessings in that. But folks, it wasn't until the Spirit of God came that the new covenant was completely implemented. Do you understand what you have this morning? God says there will be a time talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will be their God and they will be my people. What does Paul say? We are children of Abraham through faith. The blessing of Abraham comes through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, or he don't know you intimately, if he's working in your heart, look to him. Relationship. Makes all the difference in the world. The children of Israel needed the new covenant. They were to look ahead to the new covenant in which their hearts would be changed. They would have hearts of flesh and no longer have hearts of stone in which God would change their desires, writing his law upon their hearts. They needed salvation in Jesus Christ. They needed the new covenant. Dr. John MacArthur writes this, salvation is total transformation. The New Testament speaks of believers having a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, new power, new knowledge, new wisdom, new perception, new understanding, new righteousness, new love, new desire, new citizenship, and many other new things, all of which are summed up in the newness of life. That's the new covenant. That's relationship with the God that spoke, and it was. With the God that has done miracles beyond creation. Because when he takes a heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh, when he saves a wicked sinner like you or I, I cannot think of a greater miracle. Again, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Let's pray.